0: Welcome to the DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks, alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines.
1: How you been doing, Dave? Doing well. Another week in paradise. Tropical Storm Hannah on its way. I don't know if that's going to allow me to not have to water the lawn for the next 3 or 4 days. <laughs> that would be nice. It's pretty good. My water bill's been about $150 a, a month here, but I've got a lawn, which is great, but uh the, the water tends to evaporate before it hits the ground. So how about you? How are things back home in New York? Ready for the school year?
0: Not exactly, but we're working toward that, making some progress in that direction. Of course, every day is new information and new twists and turns and quarantine states and non-quarantine states and all the rest so it's it's a time to be flexible in the world of higher education and i guess every other industry around so yeah but i'm i'm excited to have baseball back we'll be talking about that today and that's for me that's like the the soundtrack of my summer is is baseball on the radio so i'm looking forward to being able to get back to that and have a few distractions I think that's, in some ways, kind of the overall point of our show today, to provide a little distraction. Uh, we've done nine shows that centered on politics, thrown in a little culture and, and sports, certainly, along the way. But today, we are going to focus on the return of sports. We got baseball back last night. We've got the NBA, NHL, NFL training camps starting up very soon. And so we're going to take a little break from the politics. It's good. It's healthy, right? We don't want politics to consume us. One of the problems of our day is that politics is everywhere and of course that includes sports as we've certainly seen over these last weeks but we're going to do our best to steer clear of that and talk about the games that we enjoy let's get right to it and look at some of the headlines so we're going to kind of go sport by sport here nba they are now in the bubble down there in disney world area and so far it seems to be going well there were no positive COVID-19 tests, the last round of tests. So the bubble concept seems to be working. Uh, we'll see how that goes as the, as the season progresses, certainly basketball, uh, high contact intensity sport. And so there's obviously concerns about that. But interesting restart plan they've got, Dave. So eight regular season games and a chance for some teams that are currently out of the playoffs to slide in. One team could do that in the East. There's five teams in the West that they invited what do you What do you make of all the the plans for the NBA and, and their prospects for coming to a reasonably satisfactory conclusion to the season?
1: I thought of all the the leagues I was most uh, perplexed by the nba 's plan, uh, basically because when watching the NBA over the last fifteen to thirty years, there are the best teams in basketball and, and they win, and uh, usually as seeds one, two, and three, you, you know what those seeds are and and you know, for example, for this year that um, the Bucks will be great, um, you know, as will the Raptors and Celtics and Lakers and Clippers on the other side. But you can pick from one of about eight teams uh, as to who's going to make it to the finals and who's going to win. I'd be very, very surprised if any of the six seeds are lower, never mind the eight uh, teams trying to play in, uh, get anywhere uh, in this tournament. I probably won't focus too much until they get to the actual um, first round of the series.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's with the NBA, of course, it's it's a star-driven league. It's not even just a handful of best teams, but the very best players are the ones that win championships. So you do kind of wonder, with 22 teams in the bubble, whether that was necessary. You understand why, you know, there was there would been some close calls and stars that were left out. They wanted Zion Williamson there, um, and there are other reasons perhaps to have some of the other teams that were close get in, but. Is it just a matter of getting in so you can be crushed in the first round by the Lakers or Clippers or the Bucks or whomever?
1: At least you get to play golf in the in the bubble or and you know, do every other thing in the bubble, which seems to be like a pretty nice place to live I, you know, in these times.
0: You could do worse, I think. Yeah. I've seen like the the barber shop that they set up in there and the a lot of a lot of clips of golf. You can definitely see some of these guys are First forays out on the links. Others are very experienced golfers. Obviously, Steph Curry, you know, scratch golfer, talking about organizing his own tournament. But there's others that I think are getting their first taste of the game. Great athletes, but makes for some funny golf swings sometimes. So there's there's a lot of good human interest stories coming out of this as well. Not so much of that with the NHL. So the NHL has decided rather than Orlando – They're going to center the experience in Edmonton and Toronto, which you wonder if the players are quite as excited about that option. I mean, Toronto, obviously a world-class city. Edmonton, maybe not on the top of everybody's list, but but a safe place, certainly, for a restart. Um, The big news was just yesterday. Now, the 32nd team in the NHL will be starting next year, the Seattle Kraken. Named for a legendary Norwegian sea creature, which, with my Norwegian stock and Seattle connections, I'm pretty impressed. I think that's a good choice. I'm excited about the Kraken. You know, the release the Kraken that I could see this working. Uh, obviously, there'll be natural rivals with the San Jose Sharks, right? So we got a a Kraken Sharks thing going on there. But so be, on,
1: be be honest, Matt. Did you know what a Kraken was before you looked it up, or is no, that something? I, like-
0: I did look it up. It's really (laughs) shameful because being of Norwegian heritage, I should know the stories of my people. But Uh, No, I didn't know what a Kraken was. I had to look that up. And There seems to be some dispute, actually, whether it's uh, an octopus or it's more of a giant squid, exactly what it is, depending on which versions of the story you read. I kind of picture it as squid. That seems a little more intimidating, those kind of giant squids of, you know, Melville-type legends and such. So, Seattle Kraken may may just do it. We may have a a new allegiance in the Parks family.
1: Wow. Next, you'll be, you know, listening to Pearl Jam, move out to Seattle and... (laughs) Be wearing, you know, plaid shirts and all the rest. A whole different Matt Parks. But it's, okay.
0: it's my heritage. Yeah, I know. I mean, my, you know, Norwegian forebears settled in Tacoma, Seattle. were fishermen. So, I mean, this is it's you know, big stuff these, for this, you. These are deep roots. Yeah. Big stuff. So, meanwhile, if you are a big NHL fan, they have set things up, as they often do. I mean, they're playoffs. They know how to do put on a good show. So, they've got nine days, August 1st to August 9th, where it's basically all hockey all the time. There's five or six games each day, and you can pretty much watch 12 straight hours of hockey if you have the time and the interest. Top four seeds in each conference are playing a round-robin tournament. The next eight teams are playing essentially a preliminary round of the playoffs. So there's 24 teams between Edmonton and Toronto working toward ultimately one Stanley Cup winner. You know it's always chaos in the NHL playoffs. There's always surprises and twists. And I think they've added more surprises and twists by throwing in those extra teams around Robin tournament. So, you know, I think they, this may be the kind of thing that can give them a little bit more national play than perhaps they're otherwise used to. Certainly those nine days of hockey heaven, if that's your thing, are, are coming soon.
1: That's the one thing with the NHL also. You've see many eight seeds beat one seeds and so on. Uh, playoffs in the NHL are always filled with surprises and which make it one of the best playoffs, if not the best playoff to watch. I'm a little bit worried over that nine-day period for some families that are hockey buffs. So I think of the Blanders in New Jersey. Your colleague Josh Blander and his wife. What's going to happen to the kids? Are they going to get fed? You know, right. is the grass going to get cut? You know, during those nine days. But I mean, I, other than that, I, I, I love watching uh, playoff hockey, and, and I think that's going to be a a great great tournament, and uh, hopefully it will put the NHL more in the map.
0: Big year this year, first season for the Las Vegas Raiders, the much traveled Raiders franchise, Oakland to LA to LA to Oakland
1: to now Las Vegas,
0: maybe a permanent home. It feels like the kind of franchise that should have ended up in Las Vegas all along. Perfect match.
1: Yeah. Even just looking at that stadium where it's located, uh, it's, it's going to be a crazy, crazy uh, place to play home games when they are allowed to have fans there. So, uh, yeah, I think the Raiders fans are probably pretty happy, and the, and you can drive there from anywhere along Oakland down to Southern California where there are Raiders fans everywhere. So, I think it'll be good for them.
0: The other big recent news was the mega deal for Pat Mahomes. Now, we all know with NFL contracts, you never really read the sticker price as the final amount the team is likely to pay, but... The sticker price was $500 million for a quarterback that's certainly at the very top of the NFL right now. And if there's anybody you'd want to give $500 million to, it's Pat Mahomes. Uh, speaking of quarterbacks, the other offseason big story, which we'll talk about more later, uh, very near and dear to your heart, the move of Tom Brady to Tampa Bay. And now the Patriots replacing him with Cam Newton. So that, that will certainly be a storyline that all of the NFL will be following. Uh, the first time we get to find out Was it Brady? Was it Belichick? Or maybe a little bit of both?
1: Yeah, NFL, out of all the leaks, the players seem to be most upset about wanting to return. I think that we won't have a preseason, if I'm understanding correctly, the latest proposal. I don't know how that's going to work out in terms of injuries and and all the rest. It it really is one of those things. You mentioned how the NBA is a contact sport. The NFL is, is as well. You're, you're sweating and breathing and, you know, spitting and you're right up in someone's face. And, you know, I just don't know how you're going to get around um, if someone contacts it, someone else contacting it as well. Uh, what that means if you're out for two weeks, it'll, it'll make for an interesting uh, dynamic. And I think with a lot of this, you know, it's just a choice that the player has to make going into it, knowing there's a risk. If it happens, they may be out of commission for two weeks. Hopefully nothing more serious than that. But if you get to the point where you're, you know, um, you're at at the point where you have seven players, 10 players on the team that are sick, uh, would the league at that point want to shut the whole thing down? I don't think that's a good thing. But from what I'm hearing from the players, that's maybe something that they'd want.
0: We're not going to do a full NFL preview this time around because obviously we're just some of the beginning of training camps. But we are going to talk a bit more about baseball. So the first games last night. We predicted those last week, and we'll talk about how our predictions went. Uh, Not too bad. I think we did pretty well, given the the vagaries of baseball, and you you never know exactly what you're going to get. But what I want to talk about a little bit are some of the big storylines for the season and recent seasons. Uh, One of the things that I think I'll be watching, and it may be not quite as clear how this will play out given the short season, is the way that the competitive balance in baseball has been shifting in the last few years. You know, you remember back in 2011, 12, 13, the Astros tanked. They tanked on purpose. And they got some high draft picks. To their credit, they made great picks. And then a few years later, they won the World Series. And obviously, they've been competitive the last few years as well. We know about the cheating scandal, but sort of leaving that aside, the effort to get bad so they can get good worked. And that's not something you had previously really seen in baseball, because you know, baseball draft is several years removed from actual success for most players on the field, and a lot of things happen. You know, you're drafting an 18-year high school, your high school player. That player might need three or four years in the minor leagues, even even a very good player to be ready, and they won't all make it. So it's just not the same thing as tanking so that you can get what you know will be immediate all-star pro basketball player or NFL quarterback who seems to have all the tools to start day one. In you know, baseball, the draft just doesn't work that way. And so it hasn't been a sport where you've really seen the tanking. But, but the last few years, this seems to be a new trend. Baltimore, the last two years, has lost more than 105 games. And it's becoming just a normal thing now for teams both to win 105 or more games, which has been very rare historically, and now to lose 105 or more games. The last couple of years, we've had a lot more teams doing that than in previous years. So I'm a little bit concerned, just speaking as a fan, about the overall competitive balance of baseball.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I, even years ago, I always thought about those uh, franchises that didn't have that much money. Uh, and, and never seemed to perform that well, I mean, you had your exceptions, right? You had your Kansas City Royals that had um, their great ears and blue jays, et cetera but uh, yeah, I was often thought well what 's the cor- corrective for that and uh, part of what I thought of is I, I thought of what they do in England right with the Premier League and then the championship League, so that if you want to be in the premier League with with the top teams, great, you have to earn your way after making it through the championship league and and then you get you know bumped up or you get relegated, and uh, that type of relegation uh, um, penalty for some of these franchises that are trying to tank it, maybe that would be a corrective. You'd certainly have to figure out something different in terms of who plays who in the regular season. But I don't think anyone would really mind watching you know, some of the great star pitchers for the Yankees against the Nationals like we saw last night um, on a regular basis because you had really 16 teams that had put together a great franchise and were ready to compete. So. That'd be my if, if it continues in this direction and kind of moving toward kind of you know two leagues, uh, you know, one is the you know real major leagues, the second kind of a minor major leagues. Yeah, uh, maybe something to think of.
0: I think relegation is, is not happening in American professional sports for a variety of reasons, but you do wonder is, is it necessary to create the kind of well, is it a draft lottery? Right, which which reduces the incentive for tanking because your chances of getting that number one seed are reduced. There's other ways of addressing that, but it is it does seem to be a, a reasonable concern about the competitive balance here, and and you'd, you'd hate to see teams like Baltimore, or really a storied franchise, just intentionally not fielding an adequate major league roster. True. The other obviously big trend in baseball in recent years is the you might say the big data revolution of the advanced analytics revolution, um, one of the things that's, that's really changed dramatically over the last few years has, has been the emphasis on what are sometimes called the three true outcomes. So you've got home runs, walks, strikeouts. Why are these the three true outcomes? Because these are basically events that don't involve anybody but the batter, the pitcher, and the catcher right? So you think about baseball as this interesting mix of the individual matchup between the batter and the pitcher, but then there's also the fielders behind the pitcher who are there to make plays. But obviously, a walk or a strikeout doesn't require fielders, uh, nor does a home run. And so there's been an emphasis, especially on the home run and the strikeout in recent years. And, you know, if if you grew up 80s or 90s, uh, you certainly remember the late 90s, early 2000s when the home run totals exploded, individual home run t- totals exploded. And now we know why, right? Because this was the era of steroids and other performance enhancing drugs. But actually, the home runs that are being hit now, we have a thousand more home runs last season than were hit at the height of the steroid era, right? So that's, that's another 30, essentially 30 home runs per team. And yet the individual totals aren't as extreme. So this isn't about probably performance enhancing drugs. We've got tests in place for that. When you see a trend where the whole bell curve shifts, right, that's different from where things are happening at the extreme. We recognize something weird was happening when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were hitting 60 home runs every year, and no one had ever done that before. Now people are getting 50 here and there, but a lot of people are getting 20. A lot of people are getting 30. A lot of people are getting 40. The emphasis on a different kind of swing to try to increase the probability of home runs, uh, a de-emphasis on avoiding strikeouts, so who cares if you strike out, might as well take a swing and go for home runs, has, has created this dynamic. The strikeout also up massively. Right? So uh, strikeout pitchers it used to be a big thing if you could strike out a batter in an inning. Now the best pitchers are doing Maybe a batter and a half an inning. Max Scherzer last night throws five and a third inning, strikes out 11 guys. So that's 16 outs, 11 strikeouts, only five non-strikeout outs. So this is a trend that's been developing probably over the last five, eight years. And I think there's a lot of you that are concerned that it sort of takes some of the fun, some of the other kinds of strategy out of baseball, what, what do you make of this kind of trajectory, Dave, as, as you watch baseball games and you kind of see this emphasis on the home run, the strikeout in particular, kind of take over the game?
1: Well, I think it says a lot about the technology that's now at a team's disposal uh, to be able to uh, take a look at, you know, pitch angles, hitting angles, uh, where balls fall, you know, they're, they're contacted. Um, and I mean, every single aspect of a game is taped, you know, by a team. Uh, and run through uh, digital programs and and then um, produces, you know, reports that, that can be used by teams. So um, I think it kind of shows you how um, technology in particular has, has affected a sport. And, you know, you don't blame teams for wanting uh, a winning advantage and seeing, you know, in an opportunity, okay, uh, uh, hit a home run, and we're going to have uh, this percentage more runs over the course of a season uh, rather than trying to, you know, uh, Bunt out a single, or or you know hit to a certain area, yeah. But I I think the other side of that, right? The more technology there is, the more the players become robotic, uh, and and the less that kind of natural talent, that natural swing, that natural flair that used to define the game uh, is is in play. So it's kind of art supplanting nature there's still nature involved of course but you know art may be supplementing nature to the degree where it undercuts uh, the natural grace of, of of the great ball player so you'll still have right your your um, your great players I just think that it'll be those individuals who in the past you know may have been kind of a blip on the screen who are hitting 15 to 20 home runs a year uh, because they they've conditioned themselves to kind of uh, become a manageable player. So I, that's kind of how I look at it. I don't, I mean, it's not going to keep the star from being a star, but uh, just the course of technology applied to, um, to life.
0: Yeah. And of course, really the analytics revolution is is everywhere in sports and you can find that certainly in baseball, probably earliest in baseball. Um, you know, I was growing up in the eighties and I was big in the statistical side of, of baseball and uh, reading Bill James historical baseball abstract and his annuals and Elias sports was putting out in the eighties, early nineties, annual analysis, you know, in in those days they just didn't have big data. So they were, they were really working hard to find the data that they needed to make responsible statistical judgments on things. And, you know, there was a a group of individuals back in the eighties that started up called a project score sheet who basically recorded every single play of Major League Baseball games in a way that could be then fed into computers so that this data would be available to researchers, broadly speaking, because Major League Baseball wasn't releasing the data. And in those days, not every game was on TV, so you had to actually go to the game and score score the game in a certain way. So, you know, it's a totally different world, right? As you're saying, everything now is recorded, and you can slice it and dice it easily, and, and the data has been democratized in terms of the access to it. But it was really a lot of a lot of creativity that went into some of that early early statistical analysis that kind of began this this analytics revolution and began to to change strategy it began to reveal that the stolen base wasn 't that valuable of a tool even though it 's exciting I remember Ricky Henderson stealing all those bases in the eighties and early nineties and it was you know, him on base and wondering if he was going to go and the way the catcher and the pitcher and the first base would interact on that. That was exciting, but it turns out not to be great strategically. you know, if he gets caught 40 times and he steals 130 bases, which was his, you know, record-breaking season, the net runs he's gained for his team, just not that many. Uh, And you think about other strategies like the sacrifice bunt, maybe not quite as exciting, but, but there seemed to be a place for that. And yet further analysis, no, maybe not. So, you know, there, there's this, I think what you're talking about, this this nature versus art kind of tension here, where some of the things that I think you could say make the game of baseball beautiful, and some of the, the drama that surrounds the game turn out to be things that aren't necessarily optimal strategies. And so we get this sort of massive shifting that's taking place, right? We're talking about the... The Rays this year might be playing with two outfielders and five infielders a lot of the time. And the reliever that comes in for one batter. And now we've got the opener who starts a couple of innings. And right. So these, these various changes that, again, are all about optimizing your chance to win. You don't, you know, as you said, you don't blame any team for wanting to, to win. I do wonder is there this tension with some of the things that, that make the game enjoyable, that make it pleasant to watch? And the strategies that are emerging from this data analytics.
1: Yeah, and I like you said, it's it's happening in every sport. Uh, My favorite sport uh, is the NFL, and uh, my favorite coach, as you can imagine, as a Patriots fan, is Bill Belichick. And I mean, he at a very early time was thinking in these terms. You know, just gazing at the game itself. And seeing what victory meant, and uh, he's quoted as saying 30 years ago, that really the game, very simply, from a defen- defensive standpoint in the NFL, is you defend the middle of the field. You don't allow the offense to run or pass inside. Why do you do that? Because you don't want the offense to be able to move vertical. You want to force them to move horizontal. So that's a, that's a brilliant thought. It's just a person looking at a field and conceptually saying, how do I best give my, chance, uh, my team a chance to win? I play great defense. But what does that produce? It produces another kind of beautiful thought, and that was kind of the adjustments that were made by offenses in the 1980s and 1990s. Do you think of Bill Walsh and the 49ers and the West Coast offense where you're attacking that middle of the field with quick timing pass plays? So it's kind of a counter to to Belichick's idea. You, you get the the defense on, on their heels. And then you have this back and forth, right, uh, between – uh, Belichickian type defensive schemes, and then, um, uh, the, the counter by the Bill Walsh's of the world. And there's a great book that I'll mention later in my required reading, but uh, it talks about what made Bill Walsh uh, and Bill Belichick and kind of the, the strategist that doesn't take uh, the grace out of the game, what makes them interesting. And and uh, Mike Lombardi, the author of the book, said, Weirdly, Walsh's uh, the 49ers coach op- offensive success. And his unique perspective on the passing attack stemmed in part from his experience as a defensive coach. He'd always been a defensive coach. Uh, Belichick also uses defensive knowledge to design one of the most prolific offenses in modern football. Both men understood the checks and adjustments that occurred within defensive schemes. They built a counterattack by knowing their enemy. Uh, most coaches today have been trained only on one side of the ball because they don't know both. They can't always effectively game plan against what the opposition is attempting. So there's a there's a beauty to great. Coaching or uh, generalship, so to speak, uh, that uh, plays into a lot of these sports. Um, uh, but I, 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 don't get the I get the sense that a Belichick uses data, but he doesn't let data drive his thinking or his his understanding of the game. He's going to employ it. But employ it in a way where, as a human being, he can convert it into something that that leads to to wins on the field. So it's a really it's a t- tough balance to strike, right? I mean, the NFL always seems
0: like it's it's sort of a classic copycat league. Um, you, you know, you get somebody that comes up with an innovative scheme on defense. Remember back the the Bears back in the mid '80s, and then everybody starts to say, "Well, let's let's try that." And of course, Walsh and the West Coast offense. You know, NFL you can sort of see almost on a year to year basis right, as a team has success, that the next year, others will try to copy that. And of course, we've seen that with coaching trees as well, right? When Belichick's coordinators are all over the place or have been all over the place as head coaches, many of them not super successfully, but we've seen the same thing in the last few years coming out of Kansas City or or Los Angeles as individual team success. Okay, therefore, I want to put an offense out there like, like that one, and I wanna bring in somebody who was working on that
1: offense to implement it. Right, and you just think on that, you know, who's replied best to Belichick, Andy Reid. By what? Spreading the field. Um, having these run option plays, uh, run pass option plays. and. And, you know, speed wins. Uh, so what's Belichick going to do this season? Well, the talk, he's going to go to a no position defense. So it's it's, it's fun to watch. It kind of goes back to this um, real question of, you know, is it is it the coach that makes the team great or the players that make the team great? Of course, we talk about this in New England between Brady and, and, and Belichick, but you can talk about this in, in many an industries and a manager that makes the firm great or the talent within the firm. Is it a teacher uh, that has the greatest impact on the student or the student's natural talent? Of course it's a teacher we're talking. This <laughs> teacher. That, that one's easy. That one's simple, right? Of course it's <laughs> us. But, um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting and it's, it's interesting how technology is employed in, in this as well. But hopefully the human aspect of sport will still be there. Certainly watching um, sport last night while it made me happy and my wife unhappy, uh, definitely produced a better dynamic in, in our household.
0: So we're going to transition at this point to our required reading. And we're going to talk about some books that we find helpful and thoughtful and explaining the present sports scene. So, Professor Corbin, what are you going to lead off with today?
1: Well, I'm going to stick with football and, and, and reference one book that I think is a, is a great read on on coaching and, and uh, it's called uh, Football, Gridiron Genius. And it's written by uh, Michael Lombardi, uh, who's a former GM. And uh, the book deals with how do you build teams and win at the highest level when you're trying to take into account um, a variety of different factors. Um, you're dealing with a, a 22-year-old person that you don't know what their character is like. You may be able to test them and how fast they can run, how strong they are, and all the rest, but how can you get them to fit a scheme? Uh, how do you work with personalities and all the rest? So what, how have the best coaches in NFL history uh, dealt with, with these issues? So uh, that's my recommended, uh, I call it recommended, not required reading for the week, given that this <laughs> no. is... Uh, more of a show on sports.
0: Yeah, well, I think you can still have required reading. So I'm, I'm going I'm to give you one required and one recommended then. So my required reading is Ted Williams, The Science of Hitting. And this, this actually began as a Sports Illustrated article. If you go on eBay, you can buy a copy of the Sports Illustrated issue where he talks about the science of hitting, but then it turned into a book, 1970, and then it was revised in 86. So the copy I grew up with was that 86 version, but you can still find, if you look in the right places, that early first edition. But you know, long before data revolution, long before the mathematicians took over baseball and the rest of, rest of sports, Ted Williams was really carefully reflecting on, I think it's fair to call it, the science of hitting. And here you have a guy who was at his best as good as anybody has ever been. And you, know, you can have your debates about you know, the, the, the final Mount Rushmore of, of baseball hitters, but Ted Williams is somewhere in that group. And probably nobody in that group thought more about the craft and thought through how do you optimize your ability to perform well under those very challenging circumstances. So, you know, it's rare for somebody who is a genius in one area to be able to explain that well to write a good book about it. You know, a lot of geniuses can can do amazing things, but they can't explain it. They can't give you an account of how they did it. But this book, and it's you know, there's a co-author that helped him, but this is this is Ted Williams laying out what it was that that made him great, and the kind of thought process he went through, and you know, people still read it today. I saw an article online where Chris Bryant said, as he was growing up, he was reading this book. I remember Wade Boggs back in the '80s talked over and over again about how much benefit he got out of out of Ted Williams, and I think what's happened actually is that some of the things that Williams was onto, you know, as a player in the '40s and '50s, have kind of come back. Uh, there was a period. Charlie Lau was a big hitting coach in the '80s. Had a totally different theory. He he wanted you to swing down on the ball. I don't know if you remember those those weird swings in the '80s. All these guys kind of chopping at the ball, fast runners, infield singles. You know, that's totally the opposite of where we are today. But a lot of the things that Ted Williams was talking about are just the kinds of things that the game has come back around to. So it's a short book, but it's 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 one of those. Neat gifts that that a genius has left to the rest yeah. of us.
1: It's funny when you uh, when you mentioned you're going to do this on the show. I, I remember my neighbor, uh, an older gentleman, gave me that book. It was a white book, and it had the uh, nine squares of the Reich uh, yeah. uh, strike zone on the front of it. Right. Um, uh, didn't really. Uh, I mean, I just didn't have a natural talent to to make it. Uh, the book work but it was just an interesting i remember even back then just kind of looking at it as an 8 year old and like wondering wow this is pretty pretty neat so yeah good for all the baseball players out there get that book yeah
0: yeah i mean no guarantees it's not going to make you ted williams but but there is something about being able to explore a genius at his at his craft that and you, that's interesting
1: yeah and you wonder i mean i i think there're really bright athletes out there right who have not only can perform, but can think about why they've performed well and how they've made their performance better. So you can imagine a Tom Brady writing a book called The Science of Quarterbacking that would likewise be as intelligent a read on what you're actually going through uh, and what he's gone through for 20 years to make himself the best that he can be. And I think that that type of uh, boy, you, you said it was a gift. It's a gift for anyone to be able to do that, whether they're talking as Hamilton is in the science of politics or Ted Williams in the science of hitting, uh, to pass that along to another to be able to communicate uh, that natural um, uh, genius or ability is, is pretty neat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The other book I'm going to mention, which is, I guess, obvious in the context probably, is Moneyball, uh, Michael Lewis, 2004. And, you know, I, the the book itself. The style is a little pompous. You know, it's sort of everybody's an idiot except Billy Bean and Michael Lewis, basically, is the way that it's sort of written, the style. But if you want to understand where baseball is today and really where sports more broadly is today and how the emergence of big data and analytics and the opportunity to find value that had been previously hidden, I mean, that, that's, that's really that story. And you know, the Brad Pitt movie's fine, but but you gotta read the book if you really want the you want the story. You know, all of this is is part of a longer story of development of understanding of you know, these games. And you know, that that part of it I, I find fascinating and interesting. You know, I think some of the, the, the danger of you know, the over analytics approach to sport. I mean, there's there's a lot of a lot of writers today that think you're a complete idiot if you still care about whether pitchers win games, right? Because that's, that's just a stupid statistic. What do you care about? Pitcher wins. And there's kind of a, a a, a scientism almost that's sort of taken over sports writing in certain ways. Uh, You have the political sports writers. You've got the kind of science type sports writers that are, that are too interested in kind of bludgeoning people with their superior statistical knowledge, or at least wanting to use numbers as if they have superior statistical knowledge. But there can still be artful stories. There can still be a way of incorporating this new information into games that make these games better, more enjoyable, and allow us to have deeper insights into what makes great athletes great. You know, The thing that, that's drawn me to sports my whole life is a vision of, of human excellence and to see – people perform tasks that in some ways are completely random, right? Why that ball and that bat and these rules, all of that is like, is, an, is arbitrary from a certain perspective. But there's something about the game coming together and to see someone do it well. Now, I, I will never forget the greatest sports moment of my life was watching Michael Johnson in the 96 Olympics run the 200 meters, break the world record by like three-tenths of a second. It was just Unbelievable take your breath away performance. The you know, guy's accelerating that last hundred meters as he takes the gold medal. And I'm not a huge track and field person, I don't care about it except every four years when the Olympics comes around. But there is something about that performance, right? Seeing a human being do something that nobody had ever done before in such a remarkable way that's just powerful. And sports, at its best, is a reminder of that, of, of an, an achievement of excellence. And and insofar as these new technologies and abilities to analyze allow us to see more of that, great. To the degree that they obscure that, then that's where I, I regret some of the developments of these last years.
1: So it's not the true, the good, the beautiful, and the statistic. <laughs> that's right.
0: All right. Well, we're going to open the grade book now and. Since we're doing all sports this show, we're going to look at a couple of the biggest off-season stories in the two sports that are getting ready to start. So first, which by the way just happened to coincidentally intersect with our favorite teams. So it's not our fault, but that's just how it worked out. So the first is the trade of Mookie Betts from the Red Sox to the Dodgers. And we've had you know late-breaking news on that because just the other day, Betts signed a 12-year extension for $365 million. So he will be a Dodger probably for the rest of his career. What do you make of that trade, Dave, now that you uh, have kind of a foot in both camps here? A New Englander who's now living in L.A., who's at least thinking about rooting for the Dodgers. How would you grade the trade overall?
1: I think mean, the trade definitely pushed me in the direction of rooting more for the Dodgers. I, I, I think the trade was a was an F uh, for the Red Sox, and I think it was an A plus uh, plus for the Dodgers. Um, uh, Betts, from what we know of him, has uh, a great character. He works hard at his profession. Uh, he's humble, uh, and he's and he's excellent. He he plays the game the way it's supposed to be played. So, uh, to to have that person in your lineup along with Bellinger for the Dodgers, just I, I think makes them. You know, great for the next four or five years if they can hold everything else together. And I don't see what the Red Sox got in return. I, I don't know many of the minor leaguers involved and 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 whether, you know, they're going to do anything of consequence for the Red Sox. But um, if you're in New England right now and a Boston fan, you're this is really you're not looking forward to the next two months. So and, and the Red Sox are everything. Red Sox Nation is everything to, to a lot of New England. So it's a kind of downer for uh, a, a, sure, a sure F in my great book.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if you're in New York, like me, and you're a Red Sox fan, you're not especially looking forward to – I mean, it's opening night, so I'm watching tonight for sure. But, but yeah, this, this is a tough trade. I mean, the, the only excuse for it is to say, well, Betts would not have signed for the Red Sox, but we have no evidence of that. Had the Red Sox given him the same contract the Dodgers did, why wouldn't he have signed with the Red Sox? Then all this talk about getting underneath the luxury tax threshold. Now, the Red Sox are a very, very wealthy franchise, and I understand that you don't want to pay more to the common pool than you have to, but basically they got rid of Mookie Bet so they could get rid of David Price and David Price's contract, even though they're still paying half of David Price's contract. You know, we got a guy who might be a third outfielder and then a couple minor leaguers who, you know, if things go well, they're kind of back of the roster kind of players. I mean, there, there's no one here that's going to be a great major league player. So the only thing you can say is, well, we're saving money. So you better get the next big thing when there's a big free agent coming down the pike. But of course, now this is the thing. A lot of teams are locking up their own players before they get onto the free agency market. So is, is Cody Bellinger going to be available when he's a free agent? Are there going to be other top line players? Where do you go to replace Mookie Betts? That's the problem. There's no one to replace Mookie Betts. You know, Mike Trout is signed. It's just, uh, it's a blow, you know. And, and of course, the pitching on the Red Sox is horrible. They might score enough runs this year without Betts, but their pitching is horrific. So it's going to look like a very difficult season for them. How about the other big story? The Patriots letting Tom Brady go or Tom Brady choosing to walk, however
1: you want to frame that,
0: and then replacing him more recently with Cam Newton. What what'd you make of all that, Dave?
1: Yeah, I'd give the part about <clears throat> letting Tom Brady go. Uh, I'd give it an A. Uh, I think that, and that's not a hit upon Tom Brady. Tom Brady was probably the most generous teammate that you could have over the last 15 years and made the Patriots salary cap situation work by taking contracts that were 10 to 12 million less than what he could have made on the open market. So that allowed you to get uh, Mike Rabel, another great player who you know filled out a defense or an offensive line, um, I'm not sure about the Cam Newton. I don't see how they they can lose in, unless um, there are personality conflicts uh, in in uh, Foxborough. But you know, there there could be a, a great opportunity for Cam Newton, who's a, a wonderful football player who's been injured, um, to be able to to have a good year. Uh, I, I do think that the league is changing. I do think that I mentioned earlier this kind of run-pass option um, that, that so defined offenses in the league. And it is a way that the Patriots can make that work offensively and, and um, uh, grind out uh, some wins. Uh, as I'll mention later um, in the show, I, I think it's, it's, it's a win-win. And I'm also happy for Brady. I'm, I'm, it'll be interesting to see what happens with him in Tampa Bay and uh, whether he can use all of uh, his skill set, uh, his discipline, his leadership to, to help uh, the Buccaneers do well. So uh, I think a different situation than the, than the uh, Red Sox-Mookie Betts.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think there's probably an opportunity on both sides of this. Uh, Tom Brady gets a chance to prove what he can do with another franchise. He's got Rob Gronkowski down there now with him, and an offense that seems to be designed to help him succeed at this stage of his career. And meanwhile, wouldn't it be great if, if Cam Newton could be healthy enough to really show us what he has shown in the past? I remember winning our Fantasy Football League on the back of Cam Newton some years ago. Great, great player and talent. And you could just see how Belichick could really do some neat things schematically uh, to succeed with, with Newton if, if Newton's still got it. And, you know, that, that's the open question. But but if he does, he's certainly going to be hungry. He's going to be eager to show that he has it. And so I think it could be a great opportunity for Newton and for the Patriots.
1: Yeah, and don't forget about Jarrett Stidham either. I mean, he's an unknown. Uh, for those in our national audience, won't know him at all. Texas high school football player, but uh, they're very high on him. So if, if Newton doesn't work out, it's just another year of insurance until um, uh, Stidham's ready to play um, big time. So, yeah, I'm not. I'm not – worried about the Patriots because I, I really trust uh, that, that Belichick knows what he's doing and, and they've got their ducks in a row in, in Foxborough. All
0: right. So our last grade will be assigned for each other's first four fantasy baseball draft picks. So last Monday we had our fantasy baseball draft New Hampshire league that we've been a part of. I, I've taken a couple years off, just couldn't keep up with it. But with a 60 game season and no keepers this year, Dave, you you sucked me back in. And so we were there back at it Monday night. It was a lot of fun because I, my son and I were doing this together. And, you know, he's 11 now. So when I was more into fantasy baseball, he was pretty young and not able to really be as involved. But but he was right there with me. And we were making the picks together. And I think, to be honest, I think, I think we both did pretty well. Now, we had the seventh and eighth picks out of eight. So those aren't great positions. You know, I would, I'd rather draft near the top of the, the draft, uh, especially eighth position, which we had, you know, you always have two picks in a row. So there's always the pressure. Well, okay, now, if I don't take a catcher now, will there be any good catchers when it comes back around to me 15 picks later? But uh, you know, with all that having been said, we were picking back to back. So I think we were kind of looking at the same players kind of fun to get back into this and have a chance to compete at least in fantasy baseball. So we're going to grade each other's top four picks and, you know, read these off, you're going to see we kind of have different strategies. So that'll be part of the conversation here. Dave, first, you can grade my first four picks. I went Alex Bregman with the number eight pick, Nolan Arenado at number nine, then snake back around. It was Steven Strasburg at 24 and Chris Bryant at 25.
1: I like the first two. I think that you got two really, you know, top of the game hitters. Uh, Strasburg, I'm not, Convinced uh, on. I, I mean, I'm just, I always wonder um, uh, about him year after year. Uh, he's a great pitcher, but he's not one of those top liners that I just have a lot of faith in. And Chris Bryant, you never know. There was, a, I mean, a lot of like hope that he was going to be, you know, a Mike Trout-like player early on, and he hasn't really fulfilled that potential. So, I'd give your, your first two picks uh, A's and, and your second two picks uh, B minus, both, both of the B minus. So it's B plus, you know, for your top four.
0: Okay, okay, yeah, I'll take that. I mean, I I, I thought about it the same way. In fact, your third pick would have been my third pick. Uh, you took Justin Verlander at 23. I was ready to grab him rather than Strasburg. He was kind of a tier above Strasburg as I looked at it. But uh, you grabbed him, and good for you. So your other top four picks – Jacob deGrom, number seven overall, Jack Flaherty, number ten, Verlander at twenty-three, and then Freddie Freeman at number twenty-six. Now, obviously, you were going for starting pitching first, and one of the big questions I think with a short season is what's what's the optimal strategy. For me, I was trying to avoid too much starting pitching too early, just because it seems like you know you only got twelve starts maybe, and with all the variability that's always embedded in pitchers season to season, I wanted to lead off with hitters at positions where they had some advantage over their competitors. You know, So Bregman, Arenado, clearly having the best at their respective positions. So I think I mean, you got three of the top five pitchers in baseball. And if you win all the pitching categories they could win for you, then you're in a great position in the league. I worry – about one of those guys going down or just being a little bit off or whatever so i i I wouldn't have done the pitcher first strategy. I chose not to do that, but having done that, I think you nailed it. Freddie Freeman is kind of like I think uh Chris Bryant for me he's okay, he's good, you know he's had some good seasons, um, but there were other guys at first base that I probably would have taken before Freeman at, at that point in, in in the draft. if he's your best hitter, then you have to worry in a in a relatively shallow league is he going to be enough provide enough offense to keep that side of your team afloat so I think you know I'd, I'd probably give you the same grade I think it's a b plus i as I looked at the teams after the draft I thought our team plus one other were probably the best teams in the league we'll see it's always you know on paper versus what happens but I think there's a good chance we could be fighting it out for some top places here so I'll look forward to that and I'm sure this won't be the last we talk
1: about here on the podcast. Yeah. We can post the, um, the standings on the show notes so that our listening audience can figure out who's doing better. I'm the Canyon Lake Texans. You are the,
0: we are the suffering sluggers. Okay. All right. Yeah. And by the way, we are in first place because um, we took John Carlos Stanton, who of course let off his season last, uh, last night with a two run home run. So, For a moment, we had a perfect slugging average, a perfect on-base average, uh, home run, RBIs, runs. So for one day at least, the suffering sluggers are at the top of the league.
1: Congratulations.
0: (laughs) Thank you. It might be the last day. So screenshot that, print it out, and enjoy it for the moment. All right. Well, we wrap up the show every week with the Tocqueville's crystal ball, and we always are picking something, predicting something, and seeing how we do against each other. Uh, Last Week the choices were focused on the results of last night's baseball games, and we actually did pretty well. You called a Nationals win over the Yankees, which obviously didn't happen. But then you said Dodgers eight Giants two, and it was actually eight to one. We worked through all the numbers; it was really close. But on the double tiebreaker, we decided to give it to you because your pick for the Dodgers Giants game was better than either of my picks for the other two games. Next week, you get to define the terms of the challenge. But this week, we're taking a break from our week-to-week predictions and making long-term predictions. We're going to make it quick. We're going to pick the champions of all four major sports leagues. So let's start with the NHL, Dave. We got 24 teams with a chance. Who do you think lifts Lord Stanley's Cup?
1: Tampa Bay Lightning.
0: Tampa Bay Lightning, okay. I think right. they're
1: the team to beat.
0: Well, I'm going to be the homer on this. I'm going to say it's going to be the Boston Bruins, um, although I'm going to predict, if I can make a secondary prediction, that the Dallas Stars will be their finals opponent. All right, how about the NBA? The restart coming soon. Who's, who's going to be NBA champion?
1: I'm going to go with – This is a tough one. But I'm going to go with the L.A. Clippers. I think the Clippers uh, take it. Uh, I, I think uh, Leonard is still uh, in clutch, the, the player I'd want to have on my team. We'd said earlier that the NBA is all about uh, big players playing at big moments. Um, and I just uh, – I think that uh, they can pull it together. Um, of course, Doc Rivers is our coach, former Celtics coach, and I think he's a great coach, and, and I think he'll he'll be able to get them to the promised land, and, and uh, they win – Uh, And they win a series over, here's my Homer moment, uh, over the Boston Celtics, uh, who make it in the Eastern Conference. So it's Celtics-Clippers final uh, won by the Clippers.
0: Okay. I agree with you on the Clippers. I I, I would pick them. I think it's going to be – could be a very interesting Western Conference final if it's the Clippers against the Lakers. I also would say watch out another Dallas team. The Dallas Mavericks have – Underperform in terms of their record this year. They've been one of the best teams in terms of point differential, so watch out for them on the restart. They may just be able to do some things in the playoffs. I think it's going to be Bucks and Clippers, and Clippers ultimately have too much. Kawhi Leonard wins his second straight NBA championship. Now, the NFL. Still got a month before the season starts, so a lot of twists and turns that could still be ahead of us, but why not? Let's Let's predict... The Super Bowl champion seven months before the Super Bowl happens.
1: The New England Patriots, <laughs>
0: gotta be right
1: every year. So uh, I I think that um, they they win the AFC. Uh, it's uh, it'll be an interesting year, right? I don't I don't know uh, if any team will win thirteen or fourteen games given how uh, how things may play out with health and, and all the rest. Uh, but I think in a a season of such uncertainty, you rely upon a person that can um, cover uh, every one of his bases, which I think is Belichick. So I think whether it's getting ready for the season or in season, um, doing things that are a little bit different, trying to get that competitive advantage, um, I think he'll be able to do that. Um, They may not have a great regular season, but I uh, I see them uh, really surprising people, upsetting most of America, but surprising people. <laughs> I, I would love to say uh, that uh, they play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the Super Bowl. Could you imagine that as a as a Patriots hater to see uh, Pat's Bucks in the Super Bowl? But I, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think it's going to be the Patriots versus the New Orleans Saints. Uh, and um, I think the Patriots are going to beat the Saints in the Super Bowl. <laughs> uh,
0: I don't think uh, that's going to happen. I'd I love it to happen, but... I think this is Baltimore's year. Um, you know, they, they've kept the team together from last year, and so you talk about continuity without training camp. Twenty-one or twenty-two starters are back. They've got some young players like the Mark Andrews that are developing. Lamar Jackson. Jackson can't have the same year he had last year, in all probability. But still, there's enough talent on that team, both sides of the ball. I think they're just going to have too much. Whether they win 14 games again, that may not be. But I think through. They're going to be strong. I think Kansas City, you know, they're, they're yapping a lot. They're talking about six and seven rings and, you know, let's, let's start with two guys. But, I don't think they're going to get two. Not this year anyway. I think Baltimore, and I'm sticking with the Dallas connection. Baltimore over the Cowboys. That's with the Dallas thing this week. I don't know, I but I, I, I was looking for teams that didn't do as well in terms of the record as the stats, the numbers seem to indicate they should have. You know, last year, the Cowboys outscored their opponents by over 100 points. They had third-highest point differential in the NFC, and they were 8-8. Eight and eight. You know this, that, That's unusual, right? You're losing a lot of close games. So I think the Cowboys, they got C.D. Lamb. I think that offense is going to be really tough, and they've got enough on defense. They've got some new starters on defense too. So I, I, I hate to say it, but I think, I think the Cowboys are going to go to the NFC Championship, uh, take out either the Saints or the 49ers and then lose to Baltimore in the Super Bowl. Last but not least, we have Major League Baseball. Breaking news, 16-team playoff. So there's a slight chance the Red Sox could make the playoffs. Now with over half the league, there there may very well be some teams in the playoffs with sub-500 records, so that also could be in the Red Sox' favor. What do you make of this baseball season? How's it going to end come October, Dave?
1: Well I we, we know the Astros uh, cheated and, and many of the players I, I don't know how many are still on the team, uh, and that's a, a great scandal, but there are a lot of great talented players on that team as well and i i think uh, I think the Astros uh, take uh, the American League. I think I uh, use this tr- strategy during the draft I think starting pitching uh, is essential uh, to having a good year uh, this year so I, i'm going to go with the Astros um, in the al and uh, the nationals Uh, in the NL, and um, Astros win. Uh, Astros take uh, uh, the title this year in the Major League Baseball. Okay, so
0: the rematch goes the other way. All right, well, I'm going to maybe stay a little closer to expectations here. I think it's going to be the Dodgers in the National League, and I think they will ultimately win the World Series, but I think it will be the Rays in the American League. I I really think with this new 16-team playoff, you're going to have some good team lose in the first round. It's best two out of three. So, if you've got a team that's a seven or eight seed that has two good starting pitchers, that could be enough to knock out a one or two seeds. So I would not be surprised if, if the Yankees, who have Garrett Cole, but number two, James Paxton, number three, Tanaka, you know, those are guys that could be a little shaky. What happens if they go up against Cleveland and they've got to face Clevenger and Bieber? They may not get to game three. So I, I, I'm expecting something weird to happen, especially without any real home field advantage. You get to play all three games at your home park, but no fans. So no real home field advantage. I think it can be real interesting. I'm expecting upsets, but the Dodgers just have it top to bottom. So I don't think they can be beaten. But the Rays have those three starting pitchers. They get them through that first series, and then off they go. So I think I think the Rays make it to the World Series, but the Dodgers finally get over the hump and win their first World Series title since Oral Hershiser took him to glory back in 1988. All right, well that's it for us this week. We've had a great time talking about sports. We will be back on the politics scene next time, but no doubt checking in with these sports as the seasons progress. And We certainly hope that they will progress to their planned conclusions. Thanks for being with us. As always, we encourage you to Check out the podcast and subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google and Stitcher. Really grateful for your support and we look forward to talking to you again next week.